Hi, I'm Katerina, and this is Sound Effects, a music and mental health podcast. It's Wednesday the 15th of December. I sound blocked and ill because I am, unfortunately, I've got COVID, but I'm all right. Um, This episode is an interview with author Lucy Heyman. Lucy is a vocal coach and PhD researcher specialising in supporting the mental, physical and vocal health of pop musicians. She's really well regarded in the industry. Um, You might have actually heard her name pop up quite a few times before because she's the creator and producer and host of Elevate Music podcast, which is the official podcast of Help Musicians UK. She's also a lecturer, classical musician, and the co-author of Sound Advice, the ultimate guide to a healthy and successful career in music, Um, co-written with music business journalist Rianne Jones. Um, uh, We talk about her book in this episode although when we did the interview back last summer it hadn't yet been released so we talk about it in the future tense it is now available to buy and Lucy's kindly given me um, some discount codes to share with you so I'll share that underneath in the show notes or if you prefer you can dm me on twitter at soundeffectspod and I can share the codes with you there because she's been an authoritative voice in music and mental health research um, and she's quite well known within the community of people who are involved. I really wanted to get to know her a bit. There's actually a really interesting story behind her and I wanted to kind of bring that out. And um, as with a lot of these interviews, um, she's got a very moving backstory to why she does what she does. Um, so we cover her history with her um, chronic illness and disability and how that coincides with her studies and her music career and how it's impacted her performance as a musician yeah that's my interview for this week what really interests me is is you and your journey and all the different facets of what you do and sort of getting getting your voice heard so you know you have your podcast that you do this work but then there's you in the at the heart of it and that that's kind of what I I want to elevate (laughs) (laughs) from what I can see you're you're currently doing a PhD at is it the Royal College of Music Mm. what's what's the nature of this PhD so it's looking at health and well-being support for popular musicians so I did a master's at the Royal College of Music um, about five years ago in something called performance science which essentially was looking at all the health and well-being issues that musicians can have and then looking at the research about how to support them with those issues. And then we also looked at performance psychology, so performance anxiety, perfectionism, all those kind of things. Um, And then also a bit of arts health, so music for therapeutic purposes and um, music education, because obviously so many musicians are teachers and looking at stages of development and things like that. But when I was doing that master's, I remember really clearly, it was in one of the first lectures, and 
the lecturer said something like, you know, 75% of musicians experience pain. And my background for the last previous 15 years had been in the music industry. And so I put my hand up and said, well, how many, you know, who were the musicians you were looking at? And he said, well, you know, classical musicians. I said, well, what about popular musicians? And he said, well, there isn't really any research. And I remember thinking, because I just looked, I think the BPI had done, um, they'd done a survey that year. And I think it was something like 94% of the albums sold that year were non-classical genres. And non-classical music genres. I was like, so all the research exists for 6% of the commercial music industry. That doesn't make sense to me. Um, so I never, ever, ever thought that I would end up doing a PhD. I think I probably would have, if you told me this sort of 10 years ago, this is where I'd be, I'd have actually put money on the fact that you had to be completely wrong. There was no way, because I wasn't academic at all. Um, I did do a degree, but it was music performance. And that's the only way I passed, quite frankly. I think most of my essays were were just scraping the uh, pass mark. Um, and I was only interested in music performance. I was not interested in academia. And it has absolutely astonished me how fascinated I've been with this journey. And so when I found out that there wasn't, there was so little research in pop, I was like, well, I think we need it. And and the lecturers I was working with at the time said, well, you know, why, why don't you do a PhD? I said, like, I can't do a PhD. Like, I'm, I'm not academic. They're like, yeah, you're doing great. Like, why wouldn't you? Um, so that was a separate thing that was interesting. But yeah, it's really astonished me that, that we have this huge commercial industry and we have so little research about how we can support our musicians and our artists. And that's only scratching the surface. Like, we need research on how to support all the people working in the industry. We need you know, research on how to support the crew members. And I mean, there's so much to be done. I think we need some kind of music industry sort of research hub in the UK to look at it. Um, how you fund that is a different matter. But no, that's so that that's that's what the PhD is about in a very long winded answer. Amazing. And you said you started out with um, a degree in music performance. So by mm. that, you, you would have had a musical background before university. Oh, yeah. It was my life. I was one of those kids that I just like every waking hour I could, I was playing music. Um, I think I worked out when I was I think when I was 16, I I used to average about sort of six, seven hours of playing a day. Um, I just absolutely loved it. Um, I was very lucky I got a music scholarship to a really musical school and it was like a kid in a sweet shop. I mean, they had, you know, like orchestras and bands and choirs and, you know, this amazing theatre and I just lapped every second of it up and was just playing in everything, every group I could get, you know, my hands on and um, yeah, and, and I took it really, really seriously and it was really frustrating actually because... Um, I so my main instrument at that I always sang um, but my main instrument in those days was clarinet and sax but specifically clarinet which is um, obviously so the, and that's been a very interesting transition the clarinet to you know the classical world and the sort of perfectionism and the the sort of very very serious high standards world and then making that transition into a pop band after uni but that's another story um, but so towards the end of my degree um I was practicing more and more and it was getting really serious and um, and my hands just stopped working. 
and I and, and they were just agony and my I had these really fast passages and my fingers literally just stopped and I started getting these like growths on my hand like on the bone and um yeah I went to see a physiotherapist and she said you've got really bad hypermobility like you 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 shouldn't really be playing and um so it was really it was really fascinating because I just sort of always done music and I was always playing and that was my life. And then suddenly, I guess I'd always thought I was going to probably be a clarinetist after uni. And and then when this happened, it was suddenly like, what am I going to do? Like, I've got no idea. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so, so previous to that, I mean, you know, music was completely my life. And then I was suddenly kind of faced with leaving uni and what do I do next? So which is fascinating. This this experience you had with hypermobility, was that something that you'd ever encountered before in your life? Was it completely sudden and out of the blue? Well, I mean, what's interesting is I've since been diagnosed with something called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which is quite an extreme form of hypermobility, which is a, it's like a genetic um it's a genetic issue with your collagen. So it affects lots and lots of joints and loads of different areas of your body. But it, as when I was diagnosed with EDS, I kind of looked back at my childhood and I could see, I could see where the problems were coming, like when I was growing and a lot of growing pains and issues with sports and things. Um, so yeah, it, when I, when I unpacked all of that, it kind of made sense. But to that, up until that point, no one had ever really kind of noticed anything or pointed it out although I did used to get I did used to get a lot of pain when I was playing but I always thought it was because I left it I I mean I left my practice sessions sometimes for big concerts to the last minute and this is something else I found really fascinating on the masters like there's so much research about practice and like how long is the best amount of time to practice and how you've got to take a break and things that you can do before practice not just warming up your instrument but warming up your body and actually trying to get the blood flowing and there's been so much great research and I think all of these little things are partly why I'm so passionate about getting all this information to musicians, because I think there were so many places, there were so many kind of roadblocks in my musical career that were preventable. And and so many things, you know, it, it can just be like a really good warm up and not playing too much and not, you know, all these kind of things that can actually um, really prevent quite a lot of problems, I think. What would you say were the preventable things for you? Well, the clarinet's a funny one. It was it was um, designed, obviously, hundreds of years ago, and it's not been designed in a very ergonomic way. So there are lots of adjustments you can make to set it up better. And I think I learned about these adjustments too late. So there's things like the thumb rest underneath on the back. And so because I'm hypermobile for years, my thumb kind of like almost slightly hyper extended when I held the clarinet, which then put the rest of my hands in a really kind of problematic position. And then, you know, things like that. And also because I'm hypermobile, I'd sort of bend over and I've got bad eyesight. And so all these tiny little practices that are no big deal at the time but do that for six hours every day and then you suddenly find you're sort of starting to get quite a lot of problems and and there are a lot more supports now um later to later towards the end of when I was playing there are better slings being designed um there were kind of like little spikes at the end of clarinets to take the weight and things so 
um, I think now it's it's just a case of really making people aware that there are these issues that can, you know, tiny, tiny little changes can make such a massive difference. And also, I think, you know, when you're younger, you do think you're invincible. And I'd hear about warm up, you know, you've got to warm up and you think, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and you just start playing or you might do a couple of scales. Yeah, there we go. That's my warm up. But but I didn't really realise, I don't think I knew about the physical body warm up stuff um, and how important it is to get the blood pumping around your body to protect your joints and things. And, and then also, apparently um, the cool down is meant to be really important that's something that's just come out of research quite recently Um, but there's it's interesting when I look at the support that the musicians have at the Royal College of Music and they have um, you know there's physiotherapists that come in and give lectures and and there's lectures all about sort of joint protection and there's an Alexander Technique person there Um, I think that should be made available at all at all institutions that are offering music performance because it's so important, this whole multidisciplinary way of working and getting lots of different people who are specialists in their field to come in and talk to musicians about the problems that they might be facing. It's so fascinating because um, one thing as a as a therapist that we're we're con- you know that is constantly drilled in is how the body, the mind and the body are so interconnected. Mm. And that they almost cannot be separated. And, and when you're sort of describing this, um, when I think of music and music playing, actually just how embodied the, it is, it's, it's muscular. Like exactly as you say, you're, you're, it's exercise, it's movement, it's uh, breath, it's, um, it, it's almost movement in a sound. Mm. I remember um, I was studying theatre studies at A-level and we were looking at a practitioner called Stanislavski who does the um, I can't remember what it's called it's like the you know the really sort of natural um, acting method I haven't spoken about this for years (laughs) hence why I'm kind of not really able to recall it that clearly but he had this quote that said something like um, bodily tension interferes with inner emotional experience and I always remember that because I think so much of music is about actually communicating that emotion. And I think if you have tension in certain areas, you're not able to feel that emotion or you're, you know, that you're sort of blocking the emotion that actually can be transmitted, which I think is why it's so important that we do as musicians have sort of pre-performance routines or things where before we perform, we actually take time to relax and actually try and get rid of as much tension as possible. Yeah. Would you say that you experience those sorts of tensions and blockages? Are you aware of which ones they are for you? Well, I mean, something that I really struggled with on a chronic level was performance anxiety. Um, And so I always found that one really interesting before certain gigs, like how that would literally translate to to freezing you know you know that flight fright or freeze I was a freezer like that's what I do (laughs) I just kind of get uh, like stuck like a rabbit in the headlights um and that's something that really fascinates me about performance anxiety is you know get 10 musicians in a room and ask them how it affects them and and they'll probably all be different like some people get clammy hands some people might be get get really fidgety some people will just forget you know some people start sweating loads and it's it's really interesting um but yeah performance anxiety was a really big one for me but 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 what was fascinating is with my clarinet it wasn't it wasn't so much of a problem it was when I joined a band after uni um 
that's when it became a massive problem. Wow. Tell me about that band that you joined. So it was a kind of like, um, I think it would be described as sort of electro-funk. I think we described ourselves as uh, Jamiroquai meets the Scissor Sisters. Oh, wow. So yeah, it was it was so much fun. This is probably well, like 2003. It was it was amazing, and it was like a party on stage. It was a bit like Parliament. We had, I think we had about seven seven or eight members, and um, it was really really good fun. Um, but it was it was a really interesting process because there was a lot of buzz around it very quickly. And um, I remember so clearly we did a showcase in Sony and bizarrely, um, I'm not quite sure how this happened, but somehow our manager managed to sort of invite most of London's record labels to the showcase in Sony. But uh, um, anyway, that's another story. And I think this is right. I think as a result of that, we got we got into a discussion with Warner's. And they invited us to their sort of select showcase, you know, where they're going to decide whether they're going to sign you. And it was in this, um, I think it was in a record studio in Shepherd's Bush. And it was, you know, it was in the days when there were still big record, like record deals on the table. You know, they, they were life changing amounts of money if you got them. And I remember everyone saying like we were about to do this gig. And I don't know if you've ever had any experience of like record company showcases, but they are the strangest thing ever. As a musician, like it is so unnatural. So normally you'd be playing to people who love your music or there'd be an audience and you feed off the audience. And I don't know if it's still the same, but in those days, you know, there'd be a bunch of very cool guys, like maybe five guys, and they'd have their like arms crossed at the back of the room and they just looked so bored. And it was like, yeah, you know, impress us basically. And um, and it was, you know, a really dead atmosphere. And you knew that you were basically about to play the gig of your life to the to the deadest audience. And, um, and before we went on stage, everyone was just like, you know, <laughs> looking at each other desperately, just going like, don't muck up, don't muck up. You know, this is so important, it's so important. And we all knew it was so important. And um, yeah, and I, I went on stage and I was so nervous that, uh, you know, the drama kind of did the one, two, three, four, and everything, everything left my mind. I had no idea. I, I think, it, I, I don't know, you you may um, be able to help me out with what happened, but I think it was like, um, almost like a disassociation. I almost didn't know where I was. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't play. I couldn't even remember any of the chords. So I turned the volume down and basically mimed. And then at the end, I pretended that the key, there was some problem with the sound and the keyboard didn't work and whatever. But it was, it was the scariest performance anxiety experience I've ever had. And I've been so fascinated by performance anxiety ever since. And needless to say, we didn't get we didn't get the big record deal. But that was for a lot of other reasons too. I, I would like to hope 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 to think that it was it wasn't really about me. But um uh yeah, so what was the name of your band? Uh well, the lead singer was called uh Tom Knights, and so the band was called Knights. Yeah. And um and then after that I did a lot of session singing and I did quite a lot of solo work I worked with a Bristol-based electronica artist which was really fun and yeah did did lots of that kind of thing for a while and how was it that that came about so you did um 
if I've understood you correctly, you did your degree first and then your master's and then you then you joined this band. Ah, uh, no. So no, no, no. So ex- I, the master's I did relatively recently. Okay. Yeah. So, um, no. So when I when my hands started to play up, um, I kind of looked thought, well, you know, what other things could I do? And so I started exploring, and um, I ended up doing like an internship at Warner's, and it was a summer placement. I think it was in my was it like towards the end of my degree, and um, I had four weeks planned, and I really wanted to work in Warner Classics, and I was like, right. This is what it's all about. And they said, okay, you're going to do a week in East West and you're going to do a week in like Warner Strategic Marketing, a week in uh, Warner Classics. And I can't, I can't remember, maybe with the street teams or something. And I remember just thinking like, yeah, it's all about Warner Classics. And I did the first week at East West and I was accompanying one of the A&R managers to like a studio session at Abbey Road. Or I mean, it was, in, it was incredible. And and I think we were, they were launching a more Chiba album and it was just incredible. And then the second week, I went to Warner Classics, and I think I was like archiving CDs or something. And I looked there, and I was like, "Oh, I don't think I want to work here. I think I want to go back to those really fun departments." And uh, and then so uh, yeah, then then I did another couple of weeks, and the rest, of it, and I thought, "Yeah, actually, I think I want to work in in the mainstream music industry." Um, and then I got a job with a manager, basically being like an apprentice. And just helping, doing anything I could, learning the ropes. Um, she had loads of songwriters um, that would that come and work with her, and I'd sort of do the you know sort of play the sax or sing on tracks and things, and just learn how it worked. Um, and then I got a job at a management company called Freedom, who were artist and songwriter management. Com- um, it was an artist and songwriter management company, and that was quite exciting. It was a very small company, um, and I think it was only about four of us. But Gary Barlow was one of their clients. Um, Yeah, so that was really fascinating, seeing how the commercial songwriting side of things worked. And so I was in the band part time and then that job was paying the bills, essentially. Yeah, so it was it was I mean, it was probably. Yeah, it was a couple of years sort of transition. Um, But it was it was funny because I was performing pop for many years, singing pop and electronica and drum and bass. Um, and I always, but I also always continued to sing classically as well. So I was with the London Symphony Orchestra's chorus and it made for a really interesting career because I'd sort of find that on Monday I might be like performing in a prom at the Albert Hall and on Friday I might be in a warehouse party in Shoreditch or something. (laughs) But it was, I I loved it. I loved the variation and I found that the two different genres just brought so much like I I really I, I do see sometimes that people do like to kind of pigeonhole people or projects and say well this person is a classical musician and this person is a pop musician or whatever and actually I think if you're a you know if you're a musician you can turn your hand to anything and actually I think being able to work in the two genres if you write music or or, or with anything you do like it actually I think it makes you a more well-rounded musician God, I just feel really excited when you're describing that variation, and I think it's it's interesting because it's I really share that that love of different, you know, having a different week where each day is different, and um, the thought of you having those different experiences and the different atmospheres and the different, um, I guess what it is is like the exposure to different sides of humanity in a way. 
which mm. I, I get really excited at the thought of <laughs> that but it sounds like that's what you were doing I love that the different sides of humanity it was interesting um so I, as I say I sang with this chorus for many years and um I haven't sung with them for probably 10 years and um last Friday obviously they're they're not able to do the proms at the moment and they are doing a retrospective of some of the best prom concerts and I did a prom in 2007 with um, Claudio Abado and the um, Lucerne Festival Orchestra of Mahler's Third Symphony and um, anyway so they played that live on the on the proms last Friday with the recording that I was in in 2007 and it was, and when you say about the different sides of humanity, I mean, I don't know if you know, if you're into classical music, but Mahler's Third Symphony is just, oh God, it's it's just a force of nature. And it's it's such an emotionally cathartic journey. It's it's like, you know, reminiscent of life in all its different sort of, oh, in all, all its different ways. And I don't perform anymore with a big chorus like that. And it was so wonderful to just relive that moment for a second. And and as you say, like all the different aspects of that, all the different people who were involved in the chorus, all the different musicians and, you know, and, and, and the audience. And because um, my life now is, is, is much, much more about the music industry and pop and things. And I've definitely moved away from the classical world. But it's, I say that. I'm doing a PhD at the Royal College of Music. <laughs> yeah, so maybe I am still embracing it in different ways. But actually me being involved, it was a really wonderful moment to remember how that rich tapestry and how different it was in those days. musicians being able to turn their hand to anything and this is this is a, an example of it that you say you've moved into pop but I guess that part of you won't have gone and it, it will it will always be there or come up in different ways and um, I'm always intrigued by that versatility that music can bring I was I was talking to um, my last podcast episode was with a music therapist so there, there was another area in which music can go for use in therapy and all mm. the different things that she did, like being in a choir and being a singing teacher and um, being a therapist. And yeah, so like what you're saying fits in that, that just how flexible such a career can be. Mm. I think it's really interesting that we, like you said, we box people into these professions like 
they're a pop star, they're a rock star, uh, as if that's what they are. But yes, but so much can come out of that. Mm. And I find it funny because when you have to give like a talk at a panel or, you know, a workshop or something and you've got 10 seconds to introduce yourself and you say hello I'm Lucy I'm a vocal performance coach and I've worked in the industry for 15 years or whatever you know if if I say and actually I was a classical musician and I worked I was in a pop band and I also worked in a management company and I toured with artists but I also did some sync work as well you know and, and it sounds very varied but I think actually within the music world that portfolio career is so common and you so often see musicians and artists who have their music making practice or whether it's writing or performing and then they supplement it whilst working in the industry in other roles to get enough money to be able to do what they love but so it can sometimes create quite an eclectic cv musical cv which can be quite hard to sort of explain very quickly um but it does I think it does mean that you actually bring all of those elements to whatever it is that you're doing. So, for example, if I'm coaching now, I can bring in that element of the knowledge about what it's like to tour. And I I really understand about the commercial pressures and, and what's the business side of an artist, whereas maybe... I wouldn't, you know, having not had those jobs, I wouldn't have that knowledge. But again, it can be quite hard to actually, you know, talk about the nuance when you've got very short periods of time or it's, you know, a very quick biog or something. Yeah, yeah. It's, it just sounds so exciting. <laughs> it's definitely been an interesting career. Um, but then I think I, I would love to do what you do. I think being a psychotherapist must be absolutely fascinating. Is that an area you think you might go into? Do you know, I would love to, but I think I'm doing a PhD. I, I, I think I need to just, <laughs> that is so huge. And I, I know what I'm like. I would probably go, oh, I'm going to retrain to do this. And I I think I, I, I need to really, really stick with this area because there is so much there is so much to be done and there's so much that I find fascinating about it um, that, yeah, I, I, I could quite easily jump, but I think it's, I think I need to stick. Okay. I, I'm going to come back to your PhD in a moment because I want to, I want to ask you all about that work and, and what, what you found from it and sort of leading into that, into how you ended up working with help musicians and this book that you're writing as well. I really want to ask you all of that. And um, before I do it, I wanted to just, um, check back on your, on your life. Cause you said you were into, you played the saxophone and the clarinet when, mm. um, you were at university and you sang. So I wondered, were you from a musical family as well? No, no not at all not at all um it's kind of a funny story um I you know how I don't know if your parents ever like went to like someone's house for dinner and they take the kids along and the kids get like shoved in a bedroom you know and there's like another kid there or whatever and you and and, and we went to this I don't know some of my parents friends house when I was little and um and the girl who was there was a little bit older and I found her quite intimidating <laughs> she was so cool and I was like oh, I think I was about seven or eight okay. yeah I think I was seven and um 
anyway, and I, and and she had this clarinet on the floor, and I said, oh, "What's that?" And she's like, "Oh, I, you know, clarinet. I'm not really that interested in it." She said, "You can have a go if you like." I was like, "Okay," and I, I don't know, maybe I was an awkward child, but um, I just found this. I just I thought it was just magic and I just sat there I think for about two or three hours playing this clarinet and just working out nursery rhymes um and I don't know the story goes that someone downstairs said oh Chloe's really coming on on the clarinet and her mum said no she can't get a note out of it that's not Chloe and they came upstairs and I was there just going oh my goodness can I learn how to kind of learn this instrument um but no my my parents weren't musical at all but um one thing I I think the reason um I think the reason why I music was so important to me um is that um I had an older brother who um who died when I was younger and I remember in those days I don't think and maybe I was quite young to be able to talk about it but it wasn't I think things have come on a lot in terms of being able to support children with grief and people going through difficult times. You know, it was the 80s. It was British stiff upper lip. And for me, music was just this portal to being able to understand it all. It was like when I played the clarinet or the piano, I could get everything I was feeling out and it all just made sense. And my mum said I used to sit at the piano for hours writing these songs and I would just play and improvise. Um, as an, I think I was eight, I was probably nine at that point. Um, and so it just, I don't know, it became like this sort of friend that understood me. And, and I guess that's where it started. And and also I had another older brother, um, but he was quite a lot older. So he was away a lot. So I was probably just this loner kid who just would sit and just make music all day. And it was just magical to me. Had you and your brother been close? Yeah, we had been close. Yeah. And and it's it's one of those weird things about life, isn't it? You just, I, I don't know. I think for years as a family, we kind of said, it's, yeah, I think it's just one of those things that you just can't make sense of sometimes. Just sometimes really awful things happen. And and that's all you can say, isn't it? And you just, you just move through the years and then, and then suddenly it's sort of, I don't know, 20 years on or whatever. And just to continue with that, I think this is something as well that I find really interesting because if I just take my experience as like a really as like a case study you know I I was going through something quite difficult and I was really attracted to music as a way of kind of maybe regulating emotions or you know soothe yeah I think if I look at my experience and about how you know as a child I was going through something difficult and I was really attracted to music in a way to soothe or to understand what I was going through. And I think how many other people who are now professional musicians were also attracted to music because they were going through something difficult and it helped them to sort of process that. I I would love to know, like as a psychotherapist, to what extent do you see that, that people are attracted to music as a way of helping them deal with issues and then they get thrown in the spotlight I mean thankfully I was never famous or anything but I could I I think that must be terrifying if the thing that you went to to protect you and to look after you is the thing that could ultimately cause you more pain yeah I I definitely see that duality playing out a lot and it's something I 
So in terms of people turning to music, that's definitely something I've seen. And also what you were describing before about the the, the movement of the body with music, the fact that you, you're holding tensions and you're, you're, the music can express those tensions is um, quite a powerful process that I think music playing feeds into. And I, I remember speaking to... Um, it was Ad, it was Adam Feitchek actually of Baby Shambles. He he was the one that said this. It, a lot of his research. You you've interviewed him too, haven't mm. you? Yes, yeah, so, because I realised we've got a bit of an overlap of of who we've interviewed. Um, so he may well have told you this as well. But I remember what he was saying was he was looking at how a lot of the wounds you can have in your childhood. Um, can play out in a band so if you think of a band like a sort of family unit or relationship you can play out a lot of the old family traumas that would have existed within that band dynamic um so interesting yeah and that the industry will throw that up and he was saying what i found interesting about what he said was that we we tend to think of the music industry as the problem in itself that creates the issue whereas in fact the issues are there and the industry then acts as a as an intensifier of what's already there so it throws a magnifying glass on it so then you're thrust so true. in and it all, all the trauma comes out so yeah it that's um yeah was that what you asked me? Sorry, I've gone off on a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> I was just to see whether you had seen with the people you work with that idea of people being drawn to something because it's like a soothing, cathartic experience and then actually those un- maybe unresolved issues actually causing problems further down the line. Yeah, when something like that is so private and you're your expression of that pain is private. I imagine, you know, it's the same for writers. You use this medium to kind of express yourself and then suddenly that belongs to someone else. Suddenly you're in the the public arena and people want something of you. And your, your vulnerability is exposed, which can be freeing and also then suddenly turned into something else. It's like given a different narrative, um... Or your your identities change, so um, I do I do see that happening. I think this is where, yeah, as I said in another life, I would love to be a psychotherapist. I I recently spoke to um, the BBC Six DJ Namone. Um, yeah, she she's a psychotherapist oh, as well. Oh, she as well. Fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> and she, and she was telling me about a book that I really want to read called The Body Keeps the Score. I've read that, yeah. Is it is it good? It's really, really good. It it talks about the, the way our bodies store trauma. Um, so we might move on from something that our body won't and it will it will remind us I'm praising the book in a great way, but like you know, in a really general rough um summary, um our body will 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 remember and it will show us um, our various traumas and it it can manifest in things like complex PTSD and um, um, but bodily functions, things like sexual dysfunction or things like um, uh, how our voices are impacted or where we hold tension or like you said, the fight-flight response and where they get triggered. Um, 
dissociations, all of that, um, our, our body is sort of fighting to keep us alive and sort of short circuits itself to remember the trauma. Um, so although cognitively, emotionally or mentally we might have moved on from something, our body will just remember. So if there's a slight hint of, of a threat that this trauma is going to occur, you get this sudden short fusing and then our, our body will react and um, it can seem like it's out of the blue. Um, when in fact it's your body's doing these amazing things to, to keep mm -hmm. you alive essentially. It's just that it, it gets in the way of our everyday living in the world that uh, we currently live in. One thing that I remember Adam saying to me that really struck with me when I spoke to him last year was it was something about how he was drawn to music originally. I, I'm going to misquote him, but it was something about the sound above it. And with the and, and the clarinet's a funny instrument, but um, I mean, I love it, but some people don't. I understand that. But um, and it's made of wood, but it has these beautiful, rich low notes. And I would just as a child just sort of sit there to playing these low notes. And it was it was the most sort of grounding experience. And it was like it was like there was a physical effect on my body through the low sound. And I don't really know how else to sort of describe it. But when we're talking about, you know, how the body, you know, with, with painful emotions and the body holding it, it definitely felt that there was there was something that was cathartic about playing melody and expressing yourself and, 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 and expressing the emotion of phrases. But then there was something else, like Adam said, that was completely separate, that was to do with the sound having a physical impact on your body in some way. It's very bizarre. So the... The sound of the clarinet that you're describing, that low sound, are you able to recall it right now? Like, can you almost feel it as yeah. you're talking about it? Yeah. So what happens, what's happening in your body as you recall it? Oh, it's um, it's like all the energy's going down. It's like it's, I guess it's like a grounding feeling. It's very earthy and it's, um, and it's sort of expansive. It's a, it's uh, it's funny because... I guess when you play an instrument, do you play an instrument? I play piano, not very well, to be fair. Okay. <laughs> I play piano. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you have, I think especially, I mean, I would imagine really good piano players may be able to do this with their their piano, but I think especially with instruments like like a clarinet or a flute, when you play it every single day for like 15 years you get to know it inside out and and it has different registers and it does different things in different registers and so the clarinet at the lower frequency is completely different in terms of the sort of like i don't know like the the timbre and the kind of the fatness of the sound to the middle register and the upper registers are obviously like any instrument but but I think there's something also quite unique um this is now geeking out <laughs> but when you know your instrument inside out and you you can almost feel what every single note is going to feel like and you you get that sort of intimacy and it's and obviously with the clarinet every single note that you play you have to adjust your embouchure very very slightly you know the way you the way you form your mouth and the way that you're actually using kind of your palate even to shape the sound and so you've always got to slightly be ahead and almost pitch the sound in your head before you play it so so it's interesting because when you say can I recall that sound like 
I would do that all the time. But if I was about to start a phrase, I would recall the sound so I could make sure I hit it spot on. But I haven't done that for a very, very long time. So it's lovely to recall actually that feeling. I, I would totally agree but I also think um, I used to play the piano as well and I think there's something quite powerful for young people being able to express themselves quite quickly so I think the the learning curve of little people on the piano for example is quite slow you know you, you start off with one you know one line and and and, and it can, you know you might start bringing the left hand in but your brain it takes quite a long time before you can have that freedom and I think with something like the clarinet with one line you can progress quite quickly so you can actually express yourself relatively freely quite quickly but yeah to me the it's gosh it's, it's quite a sad thing to recall really but to me thinking about the clarinet in my uh, in my childhood feels like feels like a little friend you know it's it was it was so so much it was so there kind of when i needed it it was very very strange but wonderful that that people are able to children are able to have this incredible thing that they can actually kind of express themselves with i'm I think that is beautiful and, and I'm so glad that you did have it and it it's it's making me just reflect on what you said a moment ago about um, stiff upper lip. You said this is, you know, you sort of, this is what you do, you kind of, you, you, you get on with life and and I, I'm, it's interesting for me because I'm a therapist, I'm so used to not doing that, I'm so, I'm so used to, to staying with the feeling and the emotions and when you're when you're describing this I'm wondering did you did you have means to process it other than other than through music well if I just if I describe my family dynamic um I come from a military family so so it, it, it was very stiff upper lip and it was and I've always been the black sheep I've always been the one that wants to go around playing my clarinet and you know expressing emotion and it it's just not something that my family have been able to do really um and obviously thankfully we're 20 years on and everybody has moved forward a bit but it's it's interesting because I think when I was younger I remember looking at other families and, and you could see the ones that that maybe were quite artistic and quite emotionally expressive and and you notice that there are emotional different there are differences in emotional makeup aren't there about how people process things um yeah i it was interesting when i was in my early 20s i 
well, I've been describing, you know, quite a fun time in the music industry and, you know, working really hard for the management company and, and working in the band and everything. And, and probably not surprisingly, but also because I have EDS, I got very ill. And um, uh, I, I mean, they thought it was ME. I now know it was to do with this EDS and POTS and these other things that um, chronic health issues that I have. But I do remember going to have a massage with a lady somewhere, and she and she said, and she said, "Oh, just tell me a bit about your life or whatever." And she said, um, "Yeah, I don't think you've processed that, you know, the the, the 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 death of your brother." And I remember being like, "Don't be ridiculous." It was like I don't know how many years ago, and actually that time when I was ill the first time round, that was an amazing time because I actually did take the time to process a lot of stuff that had happened up to that point and really just take time out and just go, okay, what what's happened and, and how do we sort of get as okay as you can be with it all? And what, what was that like? Oh, it was terrifying. <laughs> I was used to just, you know, gritting my teeth and just getting on and achieving more. Um, and then suddenly when you can't go to achievement to sort of, make yourself feel better you know where do you go if, if, if you're literally in a bed all day and you and you're there for sort of weeks on end what what do you do and um gosh I it was one of the hardest things I've ever been through and it was I'm so grateful for it I I just couldn't even imagine my life without it it changed the way I did everything and it changed the way I looked at everything and even even tiny things like I never even used to think about what I was eating like I remember at university, we we sort of decided, me and some girlfriends decided we wanted to lose weight. So we went on a Muller Light yogurt diet, you know, and we just lived off Muller Light yogurt. And I don't think we had any comprehension about sort of nutrition and actually, you know, food as fuel to look after you and and um, and sustain you with the things that you wanted to do. So I, I learned so much about nutrition and I read so many books about all kinds of things that, that really started to set me up and and really changed the way I approached everything in terms of health and well-being and and making that kind of at the forefront and you you mentioned um obviously because you you spoke about about you know this idea of you have this instrument that is like a friend and and then your body's impacted and then did that incapacitate you from playing the very thing that you that would be helpful yeah, and I think I struggled with that. I think when I first when I first came to London and and I couldn't really play the clarinet anymore and I still I still tried to. Um I think I probably found it quite difficult and I think I probably just, you know, threw myself into a really busy life and didn't really think about it that much. But the first thing that I tried to do when I got really ill was when I had to come back and live with my parents um for a while and um yeah, and I just would start trying to play you know, in small amounts and, and try and, and I think it took a few more years before I could do it. But I think the only way I could make living in London work financially was always to have an office job as well as being a performer or doing music. And then um, I've had so many (laughs) chronic health issues, but I I went back and and, and again, wanted to be in London and wanted to create and wanted to perform. And then I had um, some surgery for a tumour in in 2010. And I think it was then I was like, I I just have to do music. Like if that means I have to live out of London, that's what it has to be now. But it it was almost like I just kept running myself into the ground, trying to have a, a a normal office job to pay the bills and to do my music. And so... Um, I came back to Shropshire 
And I just thought, right, I'm gonna, you know, I've been singing for 10 years and I, I thought I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a vocal coach. And so I went and, and retrained and, and got the course in, in vocal, you know, how sort of how to be a singing teacher. Although that's a separate thing because there isn't really like a course you can do. There are so many different approaches to being a vocal coach, but I did the one that seemed right for me. And um, I started taking jobs in schools and I, I literally started completely again from scratch. And um, and I just spent five years, I started off spending five years just teaching singing to children in schools. And it was magic. And it, it, it completely reconnected me with that love of music, why I did it in the first place. And I had got a bit weary after, after about 10 years, well, eight years in the industry in London, you know, you do get, it, it can get quite weary, can't it? Of sort of, music as a commercial commodity and artists almost as a product and how much money can you make and I, I I just thought I've just I've just lost it I've lost that the thing that I loved about it and you know on a sort of a rainy Thursday when a little girl would come in her eyes would just be sort of like bright and she'd like, oh, can we see the little mermaid or whatever it was and, and so you'd sing part of my world and 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 they would just oh just beam and it was just so magical and I I kind of looked at myself like an apprentice again and just said, right, how do I learn the craft of teaching singing from ages six to 18? And so I did that for five years. And then um, I got a job at a university and I started teaching older, older students. Um, and then friends who were you know manager friends from the first time around in the industry said well I've got this artist would you work with this artist and then and so it was a very organic process but I I literally had a second career and it was all about okay I want to get back to music and the love of music and that is at the heart of I guess what I'm doing now which is but then I'm doing the PhD and I must be careful not to (laughs) go back to too much office work I've got to keep I've got to keep the the actual practice and and performance element of it going. So you, you became this vocal coach, you were teaching in initially in schools and then in universities and mm. and was that was when you at what point did you learn that there was you know, you said you said that you started reading this research about classical musicians and um the pain that they go through. Was that around the same time? It was. I had this amazing course leader. Um at Birmingham City University and he he was just you know I I had been self-employed a lot of my life but that was really wonderful to have a boss that was really trying to kind of nurture you and say right come and how do we progress your career and he said I really want you to to kind of come up the ranks and I would you go and I, I would really encourage you to go and do a master's um and so I looked at lots of master's courses but the students that I was coaching, it was interesting. I found at a certain level, artists didn't really need to be taught how to how to sing anymore. They needed to learn how to protect their voice. And actually a huge amount of them were having problems with things like performance anxiety and performance psychology. And I didn't know how to help them with that. So that's when I found this master's course. And there's a whole other story about that, but I don't know if you've got time. Yes, please tell me the story. <laughs> I, do, I mean, honestly, it's like, yeah this is uh, uh, yeah it it kind of almost it almost just sounds fabricated you can't quite believe it but this is this is the world of chronic health um so when I was teaching at Birmingham um I went on the train one day and 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 I cycled to the station and 
I got off the train and I, I basically couldn't walk. And I just thought, what, what on earth's going on? And I went to Boots and I thought, I've, I've got, I've got, I've got to teach. I'm standing up on stage. So I went, I went to Boots and I bought these knee, you know, strap. I just strapped everything up and I went home and I had to go to A&E and I just said, I, I, I just can't walk. Like, I don't understand what's happening. Like, I literally can't walk. And they said, do you have EDS? And I said, yes. And they said, well, this happens sometimes with EDS. Like, your joints move and your, your, you know, your kneecap is basically subluxed and dislocated, but we can't move it back. And it, this, this is probably going to be it, but we will, we will refer you to a physio. I was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Like, what do you mean? Like, I'm not going to be able to walk again. Like, you, this is you've got to. This is crazy. And um, and and anyway, so I waited for a long time, and I was meantime carrying on with my teaching on crutches, and and it was really really difficult. And um, and eventually, I saw I managed to see a specialist, and they said, Yeah, I'm I'm sorry, you won't you won't walk again. Um, and meanwhile, my health because I couldn't. I wasn't able to walk. Like I was just getting sicker and sicker. I didn't realize that I had the EDS effects when you don't have strength. Um, all these other problems come in, like heart problems and loads of other things that you just are so complicated and you sort of you think, what? But so I was starting to miss um, miss days at school and miss days at the university. And, and both employers basically said, I'm really sorry, we can't hold on to you if you can't be in every day, all day, every day. So I found myself in August with um, no work and I couldn't walk and it was it was grim Katie it was awful and the only thing the only thing I had on this on the horizon was this master's course that Paul had encouraged me to do and I just and, and I spoke to my consultant and he said you can't do it there's no way you'll be able to do it and there's no way you know it will just be so heartbreaking for you to have to quit it so I I would not do it so I spoke to my family and I said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this course. And everyone said, yeah, that's a really, that's a good idea. And then I watched this really cheesy music industry film in the uh, end of August, I think it was. And I hadn't, I think, I think I had to, you know, it was like when you, if you don't pay your fees, you're not going to get enrolled. But I think that was like the 1st of September. And I remember watching this cheesy film and it reminded me of all the things I loved about music and the music industry and whatever. And I just remember thinking, you haven't even tried, like, if you can't, if you, if you try, if you go to there and you start this course and you can't do it, that's one thing. But you haven't even done that. Like you cannot quit before even trying. So cut a long story short, um, I turned up at the Royal College of Music. My parents wheeled me in a wheelchair, like got there. And I just said, I won't be able to come to these lectures. Like um, I, I physically can't do it. And there was the most amazing course leader, Rosie Perkins. And she said, if you want to do this course, we will do whatever we can to facilitate that if it's on if it's sending you the audio if it's extending the deadlines by six months if you want to do this course we will support you and I I mean even telling you that story now like it's just unbelievable that that was actually that was that was what was happening then but so that that was all I had at, at, at that time and I would listen to an audio lecture and then just maybe spend the rest you know the rest of the week if I was very unwell just thinking and thinking and and I had so much thinking time and I was just thinking about all the issues that I was coming across with the classical musicians and thinking how could this relate to pop what how could we support pop musicians what things could be put in place what are the things that exist at the moment in terms of support with classical musicians that we could bring across to pop um and so 
what was such an amazing miracle was that I found someone who was able to help me walk again. And so within about two and a half years, three years, I was walking. And I can tell you when I was walking, oh my goodness, when I, I spent a lot of time in London again, and it was just, it was just heaven. And I, all those things I'd been thinking about and planning, um, I somehow, by some miraculous twist of fate was able to make them happen Um, and I think maybe partly because I knew and I still know that I I don't have much time I don't know how much time I have Um, things come out the blue Um, last year it was seizures I hadn't had those before Um, but it doesn't half make you really focus and say if you haven't got huge amounts of time what do you need to do and how do we make this happen as quickly as possible so that's sorry, that's a very long-winded story. No, it's really touched me. I, I don't know if you can see, I have a little tear coming out of my eye, actually. It's really, really moving. And um, you've reminded me of... Um, this is something I hear coming from musicians often, actually. Because um, that sort of magical element of music, and not just the fact that the music itself is magical, but that the the adventure of life that being a musician taps into. Because you, you were describing how so many musicians can vers- uh, diversify their, their career and, and there's something around this necessity of flexibility, of putting you sort of, into acute awareness of the the uh, ephemeral aspect of life mm. i i do see often in musicians that they're very um i i see that often that there there, there is a kind of um almost bohemian way of looking at the world because of that because you don't know where the next job will come from or because you 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 kind of submit yourself to this life that is quite magic in a way. Mm. And just as you're speaking, I, I, I just had that sense that that's that's in you because I, I can hear it. Um, this idea of being, of saying, you know, I, I have this amount of time in my life. What can I do with it? Um, not a lot of people have that. And I, I'm, I'm just wondering whether this, this is sort of, well, it's partly, I mean, I'm sure it would be partly coming very much from you as an individual and also your learnt understanding of, of how you learnt to adapt and survive in the music industry and in the music world that made you capable to, to live that way as well and not be afraid of that. Yeah, it's interesting, that idea of not being afraid. I was listening to a podcast earlier and they were saying how, you know, often in our early 20s, we are not afraid to make quite bold choices. And as we get into our mid 30s, sometimes life gets a bit more fixed and it can be much more scary to make choices or change your life. Um, and I was thinking in a strange kind of way, that's why I feel quite grateful that I have had these resets quite a few times due to chronic health, because it's almost like all expectation goes. Nothing is expected of me. And I feel lucky that I can sometimes be in that place where, okay, so if there's nothing expected, what what would I, you know, what could I do? 
if I don't, it's it's not like I have this amazing glittering career that I'm, you know, earning a hundred thousand pounds and I'm terrified if I fail. Because every time you get really ill, you are humbled and brought right back down again. And and so I I think in a way that gives you a bit of freedom. And also the fact that I think when you get ill on a regular basis, it really, I, I don't know, for me, it really um, quickly brings into view what's important. It's a bit like the pandemic, right? You know, we've suddenly, all we really want to do is go and like hug our friends and our loved ones. You know, all the other stuff just goes out the window. And and it's like it's like that with, with illness. It just, you just suddenly get those kind of, oh, hang on. Let's bring you back on on the path again. Where have you gone off? Have you gone off slightly? Come on, let's bring you back. It's really strange. Well, you're you're bringing into light, you know, disability and music in a sense of um, it's it's making me think how the industry isn't really set up to accommodate that, which I imagine is what you're what exactly what you're saying that this is the area. This is what you noticed, and mm. that this led to your research. It was interesting. The first time I was ill was around 2005, six, And in those days, I was diagnosed with ME. I, I mean, the problem with ME is it's a diagnosis of exclusion. So you can't do a test for ME. Well, you definitely couldn't then. Um, and actually, the problems weren't ME, I don't think. Um, well, I know they weren't now. Um, but in those days, ME had a slightly difficult I have to be careful here actually (laughs) in those days the music industry has changed quite a lot I think in the last 15 years um it was interesting I was speaking at the BBC introducing festival uh, I think it was 2018 and I stood in the green room and I just thought this could not be 2003 like why couldn't it and I was trying to work it out and I think the first thing um was the lady Lara who who organised it. She did a 50-50 gender split on the speakers. So firstly, it was bizarre to have so many women there. And the second thing is in 2003, there would never have been a panel on mental health. You know, it was, and it was even more of a boys club than it is now. And it was very macho and it was very much about don't show any weakness. So I came back having had nearly two years off and I, I mean, I felt shame about the fact that I'd been ill. I mean, it's it's crazy and it's taken me so long. It's been taking me so long to actually be able to talk about this publicly because for so long I thought I thought it was a sign of weakness. And I think that the I think that the the industry in those days did actually view that kind of thing as weakness. Um, and so as a young, impressionable kind of graduate, I was very eager to try and make sure that I didn't come across as weak or inadequate. Um, but ultimately, I look around, you know, the the touring sector and uh, the music industry in general. And, and if you take something like insurance, for example, where it's, you know, nine to five and then people go home, you know, the hours in music are just absolutely crazy um i did some research a few years ago at uh festivals talking to crew members it was a we didn't manage to get it into into a full study in the end but it was exploratory interviews and it was fascinating and just the hours they work i mean it just oh my goodness and 
I mean, it was that was fascinating in itself because they have such camaraderie and they look after each other so much. But to anybody who has got even the slightest health challenge, whatever that may be, if it's mental or physical, if you put someone under sort of 15 hour days every day for two weeks, like that's not a healthy working environment and it's going to bring things to the fore. And if anyone's got any susceptibility to, to having problems, they're going to come up. So yeah, to answer your question, I completely agree. I just, I, I see all these, all these um, surveys and, and there's all this research done about, about people working in music and, and it's, it's incredible, like the work that's been done around mental health and around diversity and gender um, and ethnicity. But I think the next thing we need to look at is disability. You know, how many, how many disabled, how many disabled crew members are there? That, that I, I don't, I mean, I've never come across one. And I think it's because it's, you know, it is sort of, you can only do the job if you are super fit and you're able to do it. Um, you know, how, how many disabled managers are there? Um, and, and it's a bit different when it comes to obviously office work, because that can be a bit better supported. But so much of the music industry is, is, it's all the other jobs and the freelance jobs and and that's a whole separate thing you know being a being a sort of chronically ill or disabled freelancer in the music industry um brings its own problems because obviously when you get sick you don't get paid and you know that's that's a whole separate thing so i think there's still a lot of work to do in that area well, it just, you know, it's really highlighted by what you said that, you know, you were told you can't do a master's because because you can't walk. And it took one tutor, bless that tutor, to say, well, do, mm. we'll make everything possible. And it's, a, it's astonishing because it, I, imagine, I imagine now that, you know, universities would have all sorts of things in place to ensure that disabilities factored in from... They do. And I've got to say the Royal College of Music were incredible. And there was this amazing lady called Lynette Easterbrook who runs the student services department. And every term she would create a learning agreement and it was it would go through everything and just say, right, so we can have, you know, she can have extra time for the exam if she needs it or if we need to rearrange it for another day or, you know, and and just going through everything. And I always knew if if I was having a really bad flare up for a few months, I could tell Lynette and and that was okay. Um, And so it was quite emotional at my graduation. I just gave her a huge hug and a big bunch of flowers and just said thank you so much because... um, yeah, it was just amazing. And sadly, actually, Rosie, the lady who had been so supportive, the, the course director, she was actually on maternity leave um, when I graduated. But she is now my PhD supervisor, so which is lovely. And she is, I, I just, I couldn't imagine, I couldn't want for a more understanding PhD supervisor. So tell me about this work that you're doing with her then, this, that she's supervising. Well... As I, I think I mentioned, um, I've had some really, really difficult challenges again over the last year, um, which has meant that I've actually had to have a bit of a sabbatical from it. Um, I'm going back in September. But a lot of the work I've done so far, um, I was very lucky to have a uh, an academic journal um, article published with her and another supervisor, Liliana Aruo, and uh, that was on examining the health and well-being experiences of popular musicians. And it was 
it's research is a really frustrating thing because it takes so long and there's so much you want to learn and there are so many topics that I want to look at and the whole process just takes a very long time but this one was a very exploratory interview project just going in saying we don't know what to expect you know tell me about your health and well-being what are what are the things that you find difficult and you know how could you be better supported um and what was really interesting about that project was that Rosie really encouraged me to look at the positives as well. And I think up to that point, I'd been very much thinking, you know, there's all these mental health issues in popular musicians and we need to look at that. And she said, yeah, but, you know, just to start off with, don't go in with assumptions. You don't know what you're going to find. So we kept it as open as possible. And it was really wonderful to see the positives that popular musicians got from their jobs obviously I mean of course we because they wouldn't do it if there weren't amazing aspects of it right but um you know the meaning the meaning from writing the songs you know difficult experiences processing that through writing a song then releasing that song into the public and then the public getting back in touch and saying gosh that song really helped me through a difficult period um and also things like the real intense highs that come from live performance and connecting with fans in a live performance space and all of those things so that was that was really encouraging actually to see that yeah there are a lot of a lot of challenges but there are also some really wonderful things about being a musician and i think it's important that we that when we're discussing mental health and music that we do keep some of the positive we keep discussing some of the positives because I definitely spoke to some young artists following some research that happened a few years ago, highlighting some of the difficulties that musicians face, you know, quite rightly. But they were very worried that a career in music might mean that they get mental health issues or that, they're, you know, as a result of working in music, it's going to cause this. Um, so I, th- I do think it is important that we remember that it also brings wonderful things too. Yeah. Absolutely, that double edge, there's a double edge to it. Mm. Um, I, yeah, and um, my I, my mind went on a tangent in that moment because I'm reminded of, um, do you, do you ever, um, there's a, there's a company called Music for Mental Wealth. Mm. I think they, they focus on that because I, 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 um, this is a podcast episode that I'm still editing, but, um, the, the guy that, um, runs the coaching for that says something very very similar to you there that um that we that focusing a lot on the negatives can sort of bias the idea of what it means to be in the industry and um that a lot of it is is also narrative mindsets like the things we tell ourselves in advance will sort of impact the experience we end up having Mm. he sort of brought that up so yeah I just had a little totally reminded me of that yeah 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 so um so you're in are you how far are you into this PhD currently well officially in my second year um so still really early days um but I'm looking to try and improve support for popular musicians across the board not just not just in physical health but sorry not just in mental health but also looking at all the other things so almost to create a support structure um because i think 
obviously we know that there are mental health issues but what are the other things that need support and how do we support popular musicians better and I don't think that question's really been asked from a research perspective and the other thing is I mean this when I said about the masters and all the support and research that exists for classical musicians I mean if you go to the Royal College of Music now I think as I said earlier there are these amazing multidisciplinary teams that support musicians and and help them to do, you know, to look at things like how to have the optimal mindset or, you know, how to support their health and all these things. Um, and so there's been a and a lot of that research came from research in sport. Uh, so they kind of said, OK, well, these are the areas. Let's test it on classical musicians. And so these are this is what what, what works. But so there's been quite a lot of work done already uh, in classical musicians, but you can't just purely lift it and put it into pop. We need to work out which things work and what other things there may be that we haven't got already in cl- from classical. Maybe there are new things. Um, and so looking at other areas of performance and saying, you know, what can we pull from these other areas of performance? And and then actually creating a bespoke support package for musicians from that. So um, what are you generally finding in this in these questions that you're asking? Well, one of the things that I've found quite interesting about the difference between classical musicians and pop is that, and this isn't, this hasn't been proved by research yet, this is just anecdotally, um, but it seems that classical musicians, obviously the, the level of task necessary to, to say, for example, be... Um, a professional violinist is probably higher than a guitarist in a band and you know in those very very serious concert halls where you can hear a pinprick if you get that solo wrong the whole room is going to hear you whereas if you're a guitarist in a stadium with everyone singing and and you drop a note you know they're probably not going to hear you and they're not going to judge you and your career is not going to be over so I think the level of performance anxiety seems to be different certainly in pop musicians i see i see that it's less about the task mastery there's like a sources of stress model that i find really interesting and it separates it into task mastery environment and trait anxiety but say for pop musicians that often it's the environment that causes a lot of the problems so you know an unknown artist can suddenly be propelled into the public very, very quickly if they have a hit. And they may not have had that natural progression of going up through the different concerts to to get acclimatised to the different audience size. So they could quite easily, you know, end up at Wembley Arena sort of quite quickly if they had a huge hit without actually getting accustomed to that size of gig. Um, But the other thing I see a lot in popular musicians is just very high levels of exhaustion. Um, I think so many musicians are self-managers and even if they're not they're they're like CEOs of their own enterprise you know so you've got the performance and the touring but then you've got all the releasing and the writing of the songs and the marketing and everything that goes with that and then you've got the promotion and the interviews and the TV interviews and the radio interviews and just the sheer volume of work that is expected of them is just it's like running a marathon every day and I'm really fascinated by how you can support artists in that space, especially for singers, right? Because 
as we've said, you know, all talking about tension and the body and, and how that tension and exhaustion can actually show in the voice. If you are exhausted, you cannot sing. Like, you can really hear it. And actually, it's going to cause problems. You know, vocal loading is is a thing. If you, if you overload someone's system and they're exhausted and they're singing when they're exhausted and they've been traveling loads and maybe they haven't got the healthiest vocal practices, suddenly you're going to have someone who's got serious vocal health issues and they can't perform and and then there's this huge machine riding on them you know there's all these people who've bought the tickets and all the staff who are you know expecting them to to be on stage and and then there's the stress of thinking my goodness you know I can't cancel this gig everything's riding on it there's so much money riding on it or whatever um so I mean I think a, a huge question is how how can you help pop musicians manage that exhaustion or how can you help them cut down the workload or and and so a lot of stuff that I I do with musicians as well is like helping them work out because I do um I do healthy performance sessions for BAPAM which is the British Association of Performing Arts Medicine so um we helped we we we, there was a, a round table um, and all of us helped to create a healthy touring syllabus. Um, so looking at all the things that you need for a healthy tour and how to prepare people for it. And then out the back of that came the healthy practice approach. So I, I coach musicians in all areas of that. And, you know, and there are elements of goal setting in that. Um, but one of the things is actually looking at looking at their what they do on a daily basis and try and work out how can they do that better um and how can they you know sometimes that's even just being more organized or or even checking in and making sure that their goals are still are still in line with their values and what they want to be doing and and sometimes people are trudging on you know working so hard and they've lost all motivation and enthusiasm and it's because they don't really want to be doing that anymore you know and they actually need to sort of just take a step back for a second and and just reassess and go how can we tweak that or how can we change it are there any are there any musicians that you are thinking of or picturing as you say this? Because I know loads have floated into my mind as you, as you've said this. I was curious if they if you're you're thinking of any. Oh, I well, I was working with. Oh, do you mean about the the organisation or about the vocal health about issues? About the vocal health and that idea of um being expected to sort of give this performance and at the same time just being so exhausted and that impacting the voice. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I've worked with some who really struggle with it. Um, there is one artist, uh, yeah, who who I tried to support through that, and um, and it was really interesting seeing in real terms the the pressure that the artist was under from the label um, in terms of the following year requests for festivals, and then we actually looked at her schedule, and I said, well, I don't I don't think you're going to be able to fly those four or five consecutive days and you're saying that this particular gig at the end on the fifth day is probably going to be the culmination of your career that's going to be the biggest gig of your life if you're flying every day and performing in different countries you know it's firstly you're probably not going to be able to give the performance you want to give on that day and secondly you're probably going to end up having issues the next week or the week after you know you can't keep up with that schedule but there was so much pressure from from the label um and 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 I saw it you know she would be on tour and and they'd just say oh um you know that day off you booked can you do a promo thing or can you come to London and do Jules Holland or whatever it was um and you and and you see there's there's huge amounts of pressure it's very difficult very difficult for them to say no 
it's making me think of all those older pop stars that that you, you know the the greats you know like um Whitney Houston and um, mm. Aretha Franklin and all of that is when you hear these stories of um you know even like Janis Joplin um how none of that support would have been there for them and then kind of no. looking back on it and thinking there's a whole there's a whole box opening up just thinking about what they would have gone through mm. and it's interesting because i think every single period let's say every decade in music has been different right in terms of like even what the music industry is so in some of those early days i remember i worked in in this first job um one of the managers had worked with thin lizzie and ultravox um and and he was telling me about how in the early days of the music industry like it wasn't it wasn't really a kind of commercial commoditized enterprise that it now is right and and he was saying it was it was a lot more sort of um i don't know it was it, it was a lot more bohemian and a lot more relaxed and things um but then obviously you the labels grew and then they're sort of you know shareholders and they expect a certain return and then before you know it it's it's a huge machine that needs profit and i think that obviously there was no support for for people like Aretha Franklin but I think the 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 specific challenges and I'd love to know more about them but they would have been quite different for her than say for example a commercial touring artist right now and they would have been different again for Whitney Houston you know what I mean I think that's what I find so fascinating is it's such a changing industry and you know even if we look at even just in the time I've been working in the industry I remember the first manager I worked with had hundreds of CDs and this is in 2003 and she said mark my words all these CDs will be gone and the record companies will lose all their power and and she said the power will go to Apple and which you know kind of did actually but this this is 2003 and I remember thinking you're what this is crazy like cds will never become obsolete record companies will always be the biggest biggest power in the music industry and then obviously that's happened and and the power did did go to apple and then obviously now it's in streaming companies but but for artists obviously the income is from touring and so it's it's just so different isn't it like if you expect that artist to be on the road and, and the money's coming from the touring so they have to be there like you know gigging maybe three or four days a week in huge stadiums you just I, I I don't know as a psychotherapist like surely we can't be wired to to have that level of stress every week we're not and then that that explains so much of how you 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 combine that level of exhaustion with the availability of things like drink and drugs and how yeah. how condoned it is. I mean, it seems like it's changing a little bit now, even there, doesn't it? Like the attitude around that, but certainly up until now, it's like a cocktail of disaster, really, isn't it? You, mm-hmm. you, if you're describing what you've just described, that really puts me into stark, you know, visceral awareness of that exhaustion. And I can only imagine you're that exhausted. You're told to do, um, you know, the fifth gig in a row. You're, you're, you've got this vocal. Was it vocal load? You said mm-hmm. uh, vocal load. And then someone says, I don't know. Here's some coke. Keep going. Or you know how yeah. easy it would be 
to get into this pattern and um, to drink away the exhaustion or to um, numb yourself from, from the chaos or, or, you know, I can see how how easy that would be. I mean, even as a um, a member of staff, I so with that, um, the management company I was telling you about, um, one of the artists, um, a guy called Tim Woodcock, he supported, so when Take That first went back on tour the first time round, so obviously Gary Barlow had been a client of theirs. So Gary said that Tim could be his support artist. So I went on the road with Take That, working for Tim as his as the management representative for um, him as the support artist on the on the Take That tour. And, and even just that, like, I remember just being utterly exhausted and just like necking the Red Bull and just be like, how do we get through the days and and the travel? And and I wasn't even standing on stage. I, I just don't know how these big artists do it. It's It must be incredibly, incredibly difficult. And you said that you're, you're working on this kind of ways of supporting um, musicians in this sort of coaching. And is that is that linked to the book that you're writing? Yes. So, um, yeah, the book came out again of that period of thinking, how can we support artists? And there's an amazing book um, by my other PhD supervisor, Erin Williamson, called Musical Excellence. And it essentially goes through all the research that exists for health and well-being and peak performance in classical musicians and sort of tells musicians how to you know manage their state before performance or how to overcome performance anxiety or you know all the things they need to know and I thought gosh wouldn't it be amazing to write a book like that for pop musicians and uh, I knew uh, music business journalist Rianne Jones and we met up a couple of summers ago and she said what are you working on and I said well I'm working on a, a book a health and well-being book for popular musicians and I said what are you working on and she said I'm working on a health and well-being book for popular musicians and we're like well do you want to combine like should we what should you know and we, and we were a bit sort of tentative about it and we said well let's just have few more discussions and and see and it became apparent that she wanted to look at the business side of things and how to approach business from a health perspective and I wanted to look at performance from a health perspective and then we both wanted to look at things like mental health physical health um, touring from a healthy perspective and so we said okay well this this kind of makes sense then Um, so I would say The challenge that I've had with what I've been writing about is that there isn't that much research about popular musicians, as I said. So it's a combination of interviewing um, professionals like Adam Fajek and interviewing artists. We've got a lot of original interviews with artists um, and then trying to sort of put that together with what there is with research, anecdotally what people are saying. and also, um, so I have obviously we mentioned I have a podcast as well. And so there's been some really interesting stories from that. And we've had some um, professionals who have commented on various things like performance anxiety or musculoskeletal pain. Um, so I got a real picture from that as well about how these issues were affecting pop musicians. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a sort of health, well-being and performance manual for popular musicians, I guess. Um, but we've actually decided to, in the end, to self-publish. We spoke to lots of different people and it's so niche um, that it was very difficult to find a publisher that would a- be able to actually 
cover who we wanted to we know exactly who our audience is and that isn't necessarily music fans and it's not the general public um it's music students it's professional musicians um and we were incredibly lucky because when we started when we decided to write it we thought well why don't we go to the music industry and actually see if maybe we could get some crowdfunding for it so we went to the major labels and they all gave us some money to write it. And then, um, so Universal and Sony, Warners, um, I think Hypnosis Songs, we had Spotify, Vivo, PRS, PPL, um, Live Nation. So Live Nation were the first ones. So we went in this meeting and 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 when the guy there said, yep, we'll support it. I, mean, I literally wanted to run up and hug him. I was like, oh my goodness, because you know, once you've got the first one, you're probably going to get other people, but it's all about that first one. So um, so the reason why I say that is because um, they've said that they will support it. And actually we can hopefully have a system where they can actually give some copies to their artists when they get signed and things. So it's a slightly unique setup. And I think it's probably one that doesn't really lend itself to a, to a traditional publisher because they essentially, the record companies essentially gave us the finance for it, if you see what I mean, gave us the advance, which is what you'd have a publisher for. So we've got enough money to, to, to pay ourselves and to print it and to market it. So we just decided that it would make a lot more sense to do it that way. Um, and we've got a lot more control over it that way. And we can actually make sure it gets to the places that we want it to get to. So you're almost describing again the process that musicians go through to self-promote and Mm. Uh, you know the same thing happening again but fantastic I can't wait so does it have a title yes uh, sound advice the ultimate guide to I think health well-being and performance in popular music for me that's what it's all about like how um being able to really gather together everything that's going on in this field like because a lot of my interviews so far have been with the musicians themselves but then it's really important for me to interweave it with what's actually going on in the field like who's doing the research where and signposting people to people to places and everything and I just wanted to check as well because you mentioned your own podcast and I that was I was gonna really ask you quite a lot about that as well and it seems like from what you're saying that that was um initially initiated because of the book because you you needed um more research or or interviews or well no it, it actually came slightly before the book um it was um so as I've mentioned I've had a few different jobs to pay the bills in the music industry and one of the jobs I had um, was working in sync. So put music for film, working for publishers, music for films and adverts. And during that time, um, I approached Fat Cat, the label, to um, see if I could... I was working for a, a publisher called Boozy and Hawks and we were um, representing small labels uh, for their catalogue to be used in, in film and, and adverts. And I approached Fat Cat and I loved their music. And, and one of their bands was Frightened Rabbit, and this band just, I mean, it was just, I don't know, there was an album, I don't know if you know their music much, but there was an album called The Midnight Organ Fight, which just, oh my goodness, it's just one of those albums that, you know, you listen to from beginning to end, and it just is like, just soul enhancing. And I remember, because I, I also am a trained yoga teacher, and I, I went to study in, in Scotland, and I remember I just got over the border, and I was like, right, putting Frightened Rabbit on, and I've been to their gigs in Glasgow, and, and you know, I, I, I would class myself as a, a really big Frightened Rabbit fan. And 
I remember the, the tweet going out in 2018 um, saying that Scott, the lead singer, was missing. And everyone was obviously incredibly concerned about him. And then, um, obviously, in due course, it became apparent that he had taken his own life. And we've had a lot of musician suicides over, it feels like, an, uh, an unusual amount of them um, over the last sort of five, ten years. But I think because I was such a massive fan and I think because I had worked with their catalogue and and it felt it felt closer to home. And this, I would say, Scott's death, do you know, I'm actually looking up at, I've got a framed picture above my desk of I'll make tiny changes to earth, which is one of his lyrics. It's like, while I'm alive, I'll make tiny changes to earth. I just absolutely love that song. And I'd say that his his death had such a massive, profound impact on how I work and I I was really sitting with it thinking okay so if a guy is in a band like let's just say I mean I obviously he had challenges that there's no way someone like me I'm not a psychotherapist I could never have helped him but I do know that the small things build up on the picture to overwhelm right you know it's it's the tiny things that 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 actually you can make as he says tiny changes and they can make a big impact and I was thinking if you you know let's say maybe you're a singer in a band um, and maybe you've got no money maybe you're you're totally broke you're probably not going to buy a book but how would you get the right you know the world leading information to somebody no matter whether they can afford it or not and it just I was like it's a podcast it's a podcast And, and and in the research I did the musicians were saying they don't they don't, didn't want to be lectured to by experts they wanted to hear other musicians talking about the issues they'd had and i thought well what if you got a musician at the beginning saying about the thing that they'd had the issue they'd had but then you got the very best musicians physiotherapist for example to say this is the way you warm up this is the way you cool down this is how you look after your body and what if you just took that across like let's say 15 topics and said, okay, this is a tiny, tiny drop in the ocean, but it's something and anybody can access it for free. Um, and that was that was the thought process behind that. And it was, I mean, I, 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 I yeah, I, I, for me, that was, it all started with Scott and thinking how, how would you make something available to somebody just so they can maybe even just feel like there is a tiny bit of help and support and and one thing that's really important to me in the podcast is that it's all about the show notes and the resources so that under every episode um, we've got all the different organizations listed where people can go for help and support with any of those issues um, and funding schemes where they can access hardship funds or anything like that the prs benevolent fund which is sorry the prs members fund now help musicians and so yeah was it you that approached help musicians with that idea it was and i didn't think i i didn't think that they well i mean obviously i approached them i hoped they would support it but it was one of those projects you know when you feel so passionately about something and you you almost don't want to say it out loud because you you know you just almost feel so kind of self-conscious about the fact that you really want it to work and and um it was you know when 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 joe gate called me and said we're going to go for it it was it was really amazing because especially i think the podcast was the first thing you know obviously i was saying about the masters and and everything had been really really difficult for quite a long time and that was the first really amazing thing to happen and it felt 
it felt incredible at the time that you could work hard and something could come good, you know, even despite when things, because sometimes you work hard and things don't come off, right? You know, like with health issues or with anything, it's it's not always a given. Um, so it really restored my faith in the ability to make change in the world, I think, you know, even in tiny, tiny ways, but just it did kind of reignite my ability to believe that you can make things happen. So you you approached them. They said yes. I imagine they were they were really quite excited to do that. And like, did um, did they sort of decide the format of it, or did you? Was it is it basically really led by you essentially? Like yeah. So I went with um, fifteen topics, um, and I had a sort of outline of the experts that I worked with already or had come across in my research, um, and artists that I knew um as I said I've been doing some research at um festivals and I'd got chatting to Miles Kane at one of them and you know we were chatting a lot of I was asking him about you know mental health and well-being and everything and and I knew that I wanted to do this podcast and he said you know what Lucy you and I should do a podcast and I said Miles I'm actually trying to make one happen. And he said, well, if you make it happen, I will come on your podcast. Here's my email address. And, and you know, and I think I said to one of the people I was with, I was like, Miles has said if I do the podcast, he'll come on it. And they were like, oh, come on. He's just being nice. You know, he's not going to do it. And then anyway, so um, when we when we had the go ahead and I said, I'd love to, I'd love Miles to do the touring one and I uh, emailed him and he was like, yeah, absolutely. When when can I come? And he's, and, uh, you know, when we recorded it, he said, Lucy, I told you I'd do it and, and, I, and I've really enjoyed it. And thank you for asking me and it was it was that was really cool but um but yeah so I took I took a I took an outline to help musicians and um and they were amazing it was again as a self-employed person you work so much on your own but it was I mean I definitely took the framework but they they fleshed it out they helped me to create it and they're such an amazing support network there's such a sort of network of people involved in it and we've got a a great producer at listen and um and we've got you know joe from the head of health and welfare and we've got alex um the external i think it's external communications officer or um but there's just such an amazing team and and so they are as much part of it as you know as 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 me but it, it definitely was originally led by me but it's become something else so they it's funded by them yes it is okay great and um yeah it's just I'm always really fascinated about how things come about and and how they how they work and the the name of the you said the name of the producer so it's produced by Elevate yes so um Elevate Music was well Elevate Music is essentially my business to do with health and well-being for popular musicians and uh i it's 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 essentially a, a health and well-being consultancy but there was a big project that i was going to launch last year and um which was going to sort of be elevates you know the launch of elevate with the podcast um but due to the seizures and so much time in hospital it hadn't actually happened yeah so yeah elevate is my health and well-being consultancy to the music industry well, I mean, I can imagine. I mean, you're doing so many things, and I can I can picture why you know. It, it sounds like it's the it's almost like um a hub that you would throw things into. Like as you're doing your research and your PhD and and the podcast, that things emerge that that then that becomes like a base somehow. Mm. So I I can see how 
it would it would feel difficult to name it just yet. It's almost like something's cooking. I, I have the sense yes. of you cooking something and that, it's not ready yet, but when it's that, ready, you'll know what it is. That's exactly it. And I, I have it all planned out. It's just, again, it's a bit like the book and the podcast, how I can make it work financially, how I can do it. And, 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 and there's different levels. And, and one of the things that I would really love to be able to do is um, lots of online videos and workshops like an online course for musicians and getting the very best experts in every area to do a workshop and actually having you know a process you can work through um so health and well-being courses i did a paper on this and looked at health and well-being courses for classical musicians around the world and looking at what they entail what can they consist of and sort of summarizing what one could look like for a popular musician um, so this is the next step, I think, in terms of provision and where I want to go. Fantastic. And you interviewed, so you've got this new series. You've already done one series for the podcast. Mm. And now you've got the COVID series, which it seems yes. like you're about halfway through. Y- yes, we've just got three episodes. Um, and we weren't really sure what to expect. Um so the first one was looking at creativity and anxiety and how difficult it's been to create. Uh, the second one was looking at finances. And then I think by the time this airs, we'll, it will be a while back. So um, the third one is looking to the future. And, you know, at the moment where we are at the end of July, we've obviously just heard that um, performances can go ahead indoors, but we still don't have the guidance on whether singing is safe and there still has to be social distancing in, in venues and that's not going to work in terms of finance for most small venues. And, you know, that's, and so it's been really interesting interviewing artists and hearing about their experience and how they've struggled, um, talking to psychotherapists about ways to manage changing states and uncertainty and anxiety. Um, and then a couple of industry commentators. So we had the uh, General Secretary of the Musicians Union, Horace Truebridge, who spoke about the research they did about, you know, how many musicians may have to leave the sector because they can't afford to stay in it. Um, the musicians who've slipped through the net of the self-employed um, scheme the obviously the the government support um and you know just sort of you know commenting more widely on on what what support we need for musicians in the music industry and and how it's going to affect the future for music yeah really kind of yeah it looks like there's going to be huge changes coming up there and like by the time this podcast comes out it will be interesting because you'll you'll have said this and then we'll know the answer almost well mm. might we might do <laughs> it will be really interesting because I've even I mean I recorded some of the interviews at the back end of June um you know we've, we've had to go back and re-record some of them and say what's well, all changed and even last week I think we had the you know the, the we the, uh, when we first started recording there was no support and then obviously the government said about the money for the arts venues I think it's the five seven seven five billion um so we had to change it again and then we got we got the uh the news a couple of days ago about the indoor performances going ahead so it feels like things are changing really fast um but let's just hope it continues for the positive it's been really fascinating to to hear that that the stories behind everything thank you Um, and hopefully like what you said about your friend's wondering where your context has gone hopefully I can 
enable that context to come out thank you yeah it's been so lovely to talk to you thank you so much for this katie i really appreciate it it's just such a privilege to be interviewed yourself like it's really wonderful thank you you're really welcome i really appreciate you agreeing so thank you as well After that book, Sound Advice, The Ultimate Guide to a Healthy and Successful Career in Music, you can order it on Amazon or you can get it at soundadvicebook.com. I mentioned that Lucy's given me some discount codes to give you in case you want to use them. You can get 20% off hardback or 25% off paperback or 15% off ebooks. So if you want a hardback, use the discount code hardcover promo. For the paperback discount, use paperback promo. And for the ebook, use the code ebook promo. You can also follow at Sound Advice Book on Twitter as well. Um, and her podcast Twitter handle is at Elevate Music Pod. Or you can uh, look at lucyhayman.com. As usual, you can follow me on Twitter at soundeffectspod, that's effects with an A, or email me at soundeffectspodcast at gmail.com, or find me on Instagram at sound underscore effects underscore podcast. If you want to leave me a review on iTunes, please do, or you can support me at ko-fi.com forward slash soundeffectspod, that's ko dash fi dot com forward slash sound effects pod where you can um donate as little or as much as you want to the podcast if you wish or you don't have to do anything at all i just hope you enjoy the podcasts um most of all i love getting feedback so um please contact me and tell me what you think and i'd love to speak to you take care bye bye